Carlos Rodella. Hey, Jason Sachs. Thanks for joining me to talk turtles again. People are excited to hear the history of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Part 2. Well, they should be because they're fun turtles. They are. <laughs> when we last left off, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird were rich, stinking rich, crazy yeah. rich. Rich beyond their wildest dreams. Really beyond their wildest dreams from just creating these four ridiculous little Ninja Turtle creatures. And also, remember, like, doing it from an original design, which was... Basically, them just trying to one-up each other. They were just playing, just hanging out, yeah. just having a good time. Never any thought of making themselves into millionaires. And yet, by like 1989, four years after they created the Turtles, they were earning, they said, $50 million a year. And that's all the comic books, right? That's off the comics and the merchandising, too, because they own all the merchandising. Right. And the cartoon was out. The cartoon came out, I think, in 87. Okay. And I think the first movie was in production. And part of what spurred the first movie was also the success of the first Batman movie. Right. Oh, Tim Burton's Batman. Right. Because one of my it, favorites. I think it's one of the best superhero movies ever. It was also one now. of the first. If you think about this, not as a, too much of a tangent, but like I remember going to the theater going like, what the heck? Like superhero movies in the theater and like done by these interesting artsy directors like Tim Burton, you know, who had done Edward Scissorhands. And like it just was really cool to see so much attention uh, paid to it. And also Jack Nicholson was a Joker, and I was like, this is the new beginning of comic book movies. He was so good in that role. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable in that role. And he made an insane amount of money. The movie made an insane amount of money. It yeah. was green light from there on for superhero movies. Yeah. Which is ironic, because other than Batman and Ninja Turtles, none of the other superhero movies of the 80s, or 90s rather, did well at all. No. That's the only ones I think of is the Tim Burton Batman. And Turtles. And Turtles. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's been layered created the turtles they became this amazing merchandising phenomenon back issues by 1986 or so started selling for up to 150 dollars per copy crazy and as you can imagine where there's gold there's a gold rush mm-hmm. so fools rushed in to create their own ninja turtle parodies and stuff established companies started redevoting themselves to black and white a million different um, parody publishers popped up to do ripoffs of the Turtles. And along with that, a bunch of other kind of more talented people started in the industry. Remind me of what some of the ripoffs were, though, because I can't remember the names of them. Do you have some of them? So I made a list of oh. some of my favorites. Okay. And this is going to be long. Well, just give me the short version. No, I think it's going to be long okay, because okay. I think the fact that it's so long is it's just crazy. It, it's just the best And part I don't remember them. Maybe I'll remember if you tell me. So there were several that stole the entire name. There were the Adolescent Radioactive Black Belt Hamsters. Oh, my goodness. I do remember them now. You just said it. There were the Preteen Dirty Gene. That's G-E-N-E. Kung Fu Kangaroos. Don't know that. The Geriatric Gangrene Jiu-Jitsu Gerbils. Oh, my goodness. The Cold-Blooded Chameleon Commandos. The mildly microwave prepubescent kung fu gophers. That's, These are all real comics, by the way. That is incredible. I've held in my hands. There is the sultry teenage super foxes. Remind me that we need to come back to the sultry teenage super I foxes. I would always, always do this, that because I'm um, very confused. There's this um, really interesting story behind that. There's the Bushido Blade of Zatoichi Walrus. I remember that one. There are karate creatures. Komodo and the Defiance, Naz Rat, Gorilla Groundhog, Samurai Squirrel, Cyborg Gerbils, Space Beaver. The guy who did Space Beaver actually ended up being uh, uh, the guy who drew The Boys and Transmetropolitan. Oh, interesting. Yeah. These Uh, are all animals then, right? 
Well, yeah, I'm getting to that. There's okay. more, too. Those crazy peckers, which is about roosters, in case you're worried. It hasn't, yeah. Varmints, Barney the Invisible Turtle, Kamikaze Cat, Shadow of the Groundhog. And then we get into some even stranger things. Crackbusters. Remember the crack, so-called epidemic of the Oh, 90s? crack is whack. Crack is whack, dude. Just say no. <laughs> dude. Daffy Kadaffy. Wait, that's just Daffy Duck? Was it a Daffy Duck? Daffy Duck cross with Momar Gaddafi, oh the dictator goodness. of Libya. What about Libya. the copyright on that one? Reagan, that... Reagan's Radar. Reagan's Raiders. And one store owner said when Reagan's Raiders number one was released in late 1986, it outsold Marvel's G.I. Joe and my star in a three-to-one ratio. Wow. G.I. Rambot, Fat Ninja, Rockheads, Codename Ninja, Washmen, a Watchmen parody, Pork Knight, a Dark Knight Returns parody, Lifestyles of the Criminally Insane, Texas Chainsaw Samurai, Eltrek, Ninja Bot. I could go on and on. But some of these ones in the end here you're talking about, they sound like just parody for parody's sake. They're not the, like the animals being really super awesome in some way. They're yeah. not being mutant ninja something else. They're just parody type stuff, right? Were they all black and white, those ones you just read on? Every single one of them was black and white. Well, then that's part of it, right? It's interesting. It's like a style, like a film style. Yeah, well, I think – so that, that gets to a really interesting point, which is up until the success of the Turtles, most of the black and white comics of the era were kind of art-oriented comics. Most famous was Love and Rockets, which everyone knows. Mm-hmm. It's one of the great comics of all time. And there were books like uh, Peter Bagg's Neat Stuff. There's a comic called Yummy Fur, which is brilliant. Mr. X – Transit by uh, Ted McKeever, those annoying Post Brothers, which is worth its own podcast at some point. Most of the black and white comics that had that were coming out were kind of seen as the unique province of the art comics publishers. But here, all of a sudden, these schlockmeisters were coming in and publishing mm. this garbage. Yeah, and a lot of what I just called out is just absolute trash. Like even Space Beavers is like <laughs> even not, Space Beavers, even spa- not Space Beavers. I mean, when you're saying the best of the whole bunch was the adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters, and that's the one I remember. That's a problem. Yeah, and that's the one I remember though. So that must have had like it's some writing in it. That it was, was like okay. It was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, a lot of these, I'm guessing, had like one to two copies, right? Like, was it, did they get full runs? No, they sold, they sold, you know, two or three issues of each. Right. Um, But the key thing is, like, all these independent publishers started coming into the marketplace. Yep. All these people who had never been involved in comics before saw a chance to go crazy and sell a million copies of their books. And for a while, they all were. Yeah. For a period of like the first half of 1986, especially. Something like Samurai Gerbils might sell 200,000 copies. Crazy. And these people who are doing fanzine-level work were suddenly making crazy money. So, like, it's this invasion of junk. But at the same time, it was, like, kind of cool. So, because, like, there was a lot of concern at the time that all these publishers were rushing and just pushing out all this garbage. But this is also a lot of people's first work they ever did. A lot of stuff by people in high school and early college who were just kind of playing around mm-hmm. and seeing what could happen. In a way, they were true to the whole vision of Eastman and Laird, where they're just kind of in there playing. It's an indie place for them to get any showcase, essentially, what happened. Yeah. You know, there's kind of an analogy with, like, the grunge movement with Nirvana mm-hmm. and stuff. There's so many other bands that got exposed because of that. Some were not good, but some were great. And they were, you know, doing great stuff, but they needed the lens or the... You know what I mean? Like the the whole Nirvana effect to have people like look at them. And if you could get two thousand dollars together to record a demo tape or mm-hmm. to put out your comic, and 
have put it out there, yep. you had a chance to break through. And if you're thinking about it from their standpoint, why wouldn't you try? Yep. Why wouldn't you try and do that? The problem is that the retailers overbought it, overbought by 10 times what they thought they could sell. And the market just dropped out of it. Yeah. So I think this is one of the interesting tangents of the turtles is that um, they trigger this massive boom. Uh, so the other thing that happened at this time is existing publishers, some of who were pretty prestigious, um, started moving into black and white comics. And other new publishers came in and actually were doing decent work. They're the world's most fearsome fighting team. We're really hip. They're heroes in the half shell and they're green. Hey, get a grip. One of the interesting things is existing publishers started really moving towards black and white comics. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you know Eclipse Comics. They were one of the big publishers of the time. Not really. Notably, they started like they were one of the first uh, graphic novel publishers in America. They published the first true American graphic novel, Saber, by, by Don McGregor and Paul, Paul Galassi. Mm. They published uh, graphic novels in the late 70s by people like Craig Russell. And by the mid-1980s, they had a thriving line of color in black and white comics. Okay. Mostly color, mostly they were seen as maybe one half step below Marvel and DC, but still doing great work. They plunged full bore into the black and white boom. Full bore. They converted a couple titles to black and white, one of which, Crossfire, was drawn by a guy named Dan Spiegel. And it's actually great in black and white. It's better in black and white than it was in color. Uh, another book they published was Zot. Zot, created by Scott McCloud, who's famous for um, understanding comics, mm. which is um, seminal work he created, which also, by the way, Eastman and Laird had a little finger in uh, the creation of, which we'll get to in episode three of this series. Oh, okay. And Zot had been canceled after issue 10, and they revived it as a black and white series with issue 11, so you can count that as one of the gains of it. But they also published a bunch of horrible black and white books. They published the Gorilla Groundhog book. They published a book called PJ Warlock. Wait, the Gorilla Groundhog didn't work? No. The Gorilla Groundhog. Gorilla Groundhog died. They published a book called Elf Thing, which was a mixture of Elf Quest and Man Thing. Okay. And it was just awful. Um, so they went full bore into it and thrived for a little while on it. And then that market dropped out for them. At the same time, other publishers kind of continued publishing good stuff. There's a company called Vortex Comics in Canada. They published an amazing, or actually one of the Eclipse books, rather, was uh, Reed Fleming, World's Toughest Milkman. Oh, that sounds familiar. The guy who created David Boswell's from Vancouver, B.C., and it's an amazing book. Actually, it's hilarious. It's just this outstandingly bizarre story about this like extremely angry, bellicose milkman who goes out beating people up and uh, stealing their milk money. And he has this bizarre fractured romance with this woman, ends up having all these battles with his bosses. It's cool. Quick aside, when did Milk and Cheese come out? Was this the same time? Milk and Cheese also started coming out around the same I, time. I want to say it's Evan Dorkin. Evan Dorkin, yeah. Um, one of my favorite comics of all time. So anyone listening, please go back. If you like like spiteful comics. <laughs> They're so good. It's a wedge, they are of, so good. wedge of hate and a, uh, a carton of spite is what they call themselves. And they are just two like, life-like milk carton and a piece of cheese. And they do really terrible And they're things. just antisocial, and for, oh. for no reason, yeah. they destroy everything in front of them. It's almost like this this kind of boom with black and white and indie that the Turtles helped, you know, again, like you said, showcase a lot of other people's stuff, and it didn't necessarily, at this point now we're talking about milk and cheese, it's not anything like the Turtles, but it's still the kind of indie, dark kind of thing in black and, and white. And that's part of the mm-hmm. cool thing about Turtles, is it really brought in this whole other side of comics that yeah. hadn't been seen before. And, you know, if you're talking about, again, what 
Eastman Labor were all about was about unleashing your own creativity, allowing you to have the opportunity to create this work that's very personal to you. And then what do they do next? A big, huge, crazy, colorful movie. Yeah. Which is the opposite, right? Yeah. So we'll get, we'll get to the bust in a moment, because okay. I think that's really interesting. So I keep jumping to the movie. But I have a quote from a guy named Ty Templeton, who created a comic called Stig's Inferno, which Eclipse ended up publishing two issues of in black and white. He has this great quote. I don't think for a moment that Dean Mullaney, the publisher, wanted to publish Stig's Inferno until black and white became really big. Because at no time did we talk about it. And then one day, out of the blue, he just called me and said, we've cleared our schedule. We can do Stig. I think it's only because the black and white market suddenly looked hot. So I hope he wants to continue doing that, even though black and whites are dying out, because the sales drop down to the point where no one's making money like they did with the campsters and the koalas, you might suddenly go, well, this isn't quite the gold mine we thought it was. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. They, so it wasn't what, it, what you thought it was. Yeah, and they only end up publishing two or three issues of Stig's Inferno at Eclipse, which is really sad because it's a great comic. It's this bizarrely wonderful book about uh, Dante's Inferno and a punk rocker who gets sent down to Dante's Inferno to live in, live the afterlife oh. that he deserves, basically. It's hilarious. Sounds good. There's a great collected edition put out around that same time, but it's one of those great lost comics of the, of the era. Other publishers kind of came to 4-2. There's a company called Dark Horse Comics, of course. of course. Everyone knows Dark Horse. Dark Horse actually launched during the Black and White Bust, and they stood out because of the quality of their books, and actually they were quickly recognized as probably the, one of the prestige publishers of the time. Yep. They published, among other things, Concrete, which was the big book from Pulp Chadwick, and that quickly gained uh, everyone's eye and everyone's attention and seemed to almost redeem the black and white bust. Well, no, no, I mean, get good writers and what's going to happen, right? Like, a lot of that's the writing, wasn't it? It's exactly right. It's yeah. all about the quality of what you brought to the table. Yeah. It's all about having the opportunity to create your own work, right? Stig's Inferno, Reed Fleming, Zot, Concrete, those are all, like, single creator auteur books. Yeah, yeah. And they all thrive, and they're all great because they're single creator auteur books yeah. with the creator really being able to show what they love to do. And even publishers like Fanagraphics, who was seen as the prestige publisher, they launched their own Animals Anthology comic during the time of the black and white boom mm, and bust, I didn't know that. called Critters. Okay. And Critters uh, includes some of the earliest Isaji Yojimbo stories. Oh, yes, I know him. Yeah, and most people do. He's an yeah. amazing character. He's been around now for, what, nearly 40 years. Yeah. And Usagi originated in the pages of Critters magazine Critters. that Fanagraphics put out. Yeah. So at the same time that they were complaining about all this, like everyone was jumping on board because it was a chance to produce this work I, that was going to make incredible amounts of money. I don't see it as a negative anymore. Like after we talk through it, like in the beginning it feels that way because of all the lists that you gave me of like insane creatures that should not have ever been born. But then at the same time, <laughs> it does feel like an independent, uh, like a... Um, waterfall of new stuff coming in and which is interesting yeah so here's the rub Be because publishers overinvested in it right because a number of publishers also or uh, distributors rather because another number of publishers also were kind of fly-by-night outfits or looking to steal market share or whatever the store is way over invested in this stuff right they bought two or three times as much of this stuff they than they could possibly sell tying up all the inventory and cash flow and created what's called the 1986 black and white comics bust right so all this money that rushed in quickly just evaporated all the kids who thought that buying you know texas chainsaw samurai would make them a million dollars ended up saying no 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 you know what i can live without that i'm gonna move on to the next thing they're like where's the new spider-man yeah like they'll We're, go back to the basics right 
Yeah, or they, they'll at least go to concrete or something. Right, right. But they wouldn't buy the, the trash anymore. Yep. So all the so many of these works just kind of died on the vine. Yep. And there was a few publishers. I wanted to talk about Salson Comics as, a, as the exemplars of what this is all about. So, so Salson Comics were created by a guy named Gary Brodsky. He's called Salson because his father, Saul Brodsky, was one of the primary executives at Marvel in the 1960s and early 70s. Mm. And he was let go at some point. Well, Gary Brodsky said, well, we should publish our own comics, Dad. One month they published six comics, all of which were rip-offs in one way or another, including Eastman and Laird's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Authorized Martial Arts Training Manual. What? And then quickly like fled the market with a bunch of Z-grade quality garbage. Yeah. yeah. And their books, more than anything, kind of exemplify the era, because they were the company that put out books like Reagan's Raiders and the Daffy Kadaffy book. They'll basically, they would basically publish anything that they thought could sell any copies. Now, Brodsky then moved away from comics, and this is where this whole, that I mentioned misogyny and all this stuff to oh, you right, earlier yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. Brodsky actually is still around. Gary, if you check out GaryBrodsky.com, he sells stuff about how to pick up women. Oh, like comics. He's like, no, no, like, oh, like actual like videos and weird. seminars and all this stuff. Seminars. It's like a thing that this guy is into. Yeah. And it's like the ultimate kind of hyper-masculine, misogynistic approach to the world. It's spooky as hell and kind of fascinating and dark. And I just, I fell into that black hole for about an hour last night and I oh, kind of yeah. feel dirty from it. Yeah, you should. Especially if there's a seminar. I'm kind of worried about those people that go there. Yeah, right? Who who would attend this? And uh, yeah. what kind of terrible life lessons are they taking away <laughs> from it? But yeah, so we talked a lot about not the turtles. Because I, I wanted to talk about the <laughs> impact of the turtles. Yeah. Uh, episode one, we talked a lot about how like Eastman especially felt like he was estranged from the turtles in a way. He wasn't able to work with them directly. And it was during this time that they did about 30 issues that were created by other creators. Oh, that too. Wow. That was the stuff we were talking about. Yeah. So by folks like Mark Martin, uh, Rick Veach, Michael Zuli did a bunch of comics around that stuff. And that's when, like, basically the trolls became not just their turtles, it's but became turtles. everybody's yeah. turtles. Yeah, and everybody's inspiration, too. So it's like the whole thing is not theirs anymore. Yeah. Yeah, well, now it really isn't because Viacom owns it. But at that time, they owned the IP, but they didn't own everything else. And I think what's interesting about this black and white boom and bust is that this is other people's turtles in a way. Mm-hmm. This is the other ways that people embrace the characters and the time frame and their chance to make a million dollars. Yeah. And the fact that no one ever did doesn't take away from the fact that these people got to create work that was meaningful to them at the time. Yeah, again, I still am thinking of it as a positive, even though... Because in every type of situation like that, you're going to have companies that uh, utilize, utilize it for their own gain. And they're going to, you know, try to get as much money as they can and see what the success measures are for them, right? Yeah. But at the same time, you're going to have these independent creators who are just trying to get any visibility at all. We have the same issue right now without too much of a tangent, but the internet is full of creation. And it's so much so in the app store, in the music store, in YouTube, that you it's so hard to, to stand out. This is a moment where, again, we're talking about physical medium, talking about something where like, if you just make your book in black and white at this time period, you might make a bunch of money. Or you might make a, a moment for somebody to see your art. You have a moment so that you could actually be a celebrity. And you can't, I don't know if you can do that. You can do that more in more ways now, but I think it's harder now. I think it is having the gatekeeper of the distributors yeah. makes a big difference. 
there's almost too much there's almost too it's almost too hard to find things yeah now that said like i would never want to go back to this this non-binary era but it was hard to find anything you know when you really could feel isolated yeah where you really felt like if you were if your tastes were even remotely outside the mainstream that you were frowned upon yeah it's a double-edged sword because i i was just thinking about that today like i remember hearing like um the smiths or something right and going like if they made music today would it be as popular there was there was less of an alternative scene there was like no alternative scene and all of a sudden there was right so nine inch nails the cure all the stuff i remember from that time period would they be as big now and i think the answer is no i like, think yeah i think it falls into that the biggest problem we have now is the decline of the middle class oh that's a whole other podcast the middle class of the creative of the creative folks right yeah Let's bring that to right. another not comics podcast. Yeah. That's epic. Well, thanks so much for sharing this Turtles information. Yeah. I had no idea about that boom at all. And I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by it. It just, it, it's one of those moments in time that's both so negative and so positive. Yeah. And so curious. It also, it might have helped me discover Milk and Cheese, one of my favorite comics. Milk ever. and Cheese! Dairy products on the rampage! Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you.